0: Before we read a word of Jesus' fifth letter to the church of Sardis, I want to begin, I'm going to kind of throw a bit of a wrinkle into the normal progression of of stuff. We're going to establish, before we get to a word of it, what movement of church history Jesus is, is addressing from this church. And as we've noted, all of these letters have dual purposes, dual meanings. Yes, Jesus is writing to an actual church located in a specific town in Asia Minor in the first century. Yes, he's writing to the churches. Every letter closes. Uh, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Church is made up of people. People have ears. So Jesus is writing to each of us individually. Churches throughout all time. Our church, that church, local church, universal church. But he's also addressing movements within church history, and we've seen how this has played out as we've gone through each of these letters. We now get to Sardis. Setting the stage, though Roma Catholicism would dominate the landscape of Christianity for roughly 1,200 years, a movement that Jesus addresses with the previous letter, the Thyatira, there would be a few significant rumblings historically during the 13 and 1400s that set the stage for a series of really radical events that would change not just the church, but the world. When the Bible had been translated from its original languages. The Bible was not written in English. wasn't written uh, in the old King James. It was written in Hebrew, written in Greek, a little bit of Daniel, written in Chaldean. When these things were translated, they were translated into the Latin. But it had never been translated into the common tongue of the masses. And there was a really tragic result of this. For a thousand years, give or take, the Word of God could only be read and studied by the educated class of Catholic priests. You you didn't have a Bible that you could read for a thousand years. And to compound matters, since the, the Catholic mass was only held in Latin as well, a language, again, most commoners didn't understand or didn't know, the vast majority of the world for a thousand years, had zero exposure to the Word of God. And as I noted last Sunday, it's not a coincidence or an accident that these years we referred to historically as the Dark Ages. The first significant challenge to this system of Roman Catholicism would come from an English theologian by the name of John Wycliffe. Not only was Wycliffe an outspoken dissident, specifically taking issue with the overt and and blatant issues of of papal authority, the the authority of of the Pope over the people, Wycliffe also believed that the only reliable guide to truth, the only way you could know the truth, the truth of God, is as God revealed the truth through His Word, the Holy Scriptures. Since this was such a, a strong driving motivator, for John Wycliffe, he made it his, life, his life's work to do something that, again, had never been done. To translate the Latin Bible into the common language of the people so that anyone could read and study God's Word for themselves. In 1382, Wycliffe completed the first English translation of the Bible. Sadly, since Roman Catholicism had been able to exert massive power and authority over the people by pushing non-biblical doctrines. The idea that people could read the Bible now, well, that was seen as a very serious and dangerous development. It was a threat. Though John Wycliffe would die of natural causes on December 28, 1384, the Roman Catholic Church was really ticked off by what Wycliffe had accomplished. And so during the Council of Constance, They retroactively declared Wycliffe to be a heretic on May 4th, 1415. They banned his writings as well as his translation of the Bible. In 1428, Pope Martin V declared that Wycliffe, as a heretic, his body was to be removed from sacred soil and deserved the death of a heretic. The body's been dead for a while. So they literally dug up the corpse... Of John Wycliffe, 44 years after his death, they exhumed him, took him into the public square, and burned him to to death again. Yeah. I mean, let's just put it this way. The Catholic Church was making a point. Now, following Wycliffe for the next 150 years, bold men like John Huss would continue this important work within the church, hoping to bring about much-needed reforms and yet by the early 16th century it had become clear to most seeking these reforms that the Roman Catholic Church and her corrupt leaders were unwilling to budge to move to make any changes at all enter into the story a German priest by the name of Martin Luther as a result of the brazen actions of a Dominican friar by the name of Johann Tinsel who was selling indulgences throughout Germany, trying to raise money to rebuild St. Patrick's Basilica, on the evening of October 31st, 1517, a defiant Luther had finally had enough. That night, he nailed to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg what has now become known as the 95 Thesis. In this document, Luther protested 95 beliefs that he considered to be intolerable, practices within the Roman Catholic Church, he believed needed serious reformation. Now, though many have seen that act of nailing the 95 Thesis to the door of the the Castle Church as being the catalyst for what we know today as the Protestant Reformation, along with Luther, other men like John Calvin and Zwingli would break from the Catholic Church. They would translate the scriptures into their own native language. Eventually, They would start their own church movements. Today, mainline Protestant denominations like Lutheranism, Anglicanism, Presbyterianism, Episcopalianism, even Quakerism, all find their roots in the early days of the Protestant Reformation. Now, in the end, while the church will always be indebted to what was started by the Reformers, the reality is that the changes brought about these men, they fell woefully short. Like, in many ways, the Reformation proved to be incomplete. They didn't take things far enough. For example, while the Protestant Reformation had a significant influence on church beliefs, church theology, it actually had very little effect on church practices or culture. Like, even in its inception, the Reformation failed to deal with. But the very underlying problem that led to the formation of the Roman Catholic Church, the state church, the marriage between God's bride and the state as a fact of history, many of the Protestant churches almost immediately upon their formation became state churches, creating the exact same type of immoral behavior and political corruption found in Roman Catholicism. Beyond this, though many of the reformers would suffer and die at the hands of, of those who resisted and opposed their theological positions. Again, to be fair, the Protestant church has proved to be just as intolerant and vicious. One historian writes the following. He says, quote, We know that while in Catholic countries, the Anabaptists were executed by burning at the stake. This was another group that that came to fruition. He adds, in Lutheran and Zwingli states... Anabaptists were generally executed by beheading or drowning. So we see the same type of of vileness and, and brutality and persecution in Protestant churches as we do in the Roman Catholic churches because of this unholy union with the state itself. Now, the foundational principles of Protestantism, and you can study it on your own, but the doctrines of Bible alone, faith alone, grace alone, and Christ alone, changed the theological belief structure of the church. The Protestant Reformation, it failed in the sense that it didn't initiate a spiritual revival within the church. Yes, the Reformation corrected faulty theology, and that's good. But she failed to foster any type of lasting change within the hearts of people. Like in a sense... The legacy of the Reformation is that it's left us with a correct orthodoxy, but a dead one. Yes, there was a changing of the mind, but there wasn't a change of direction. Shockingly, and this is probably the most controversial thing I can say this morning, as we're going to see, Jesus actually has nicer things to say about the Roman Catholic Church, or even for that matter, the church before it, the Byzantine Church, than he does for the church started by Luther and Calvin. With that context established, let's just read the letter. <laughs> Chapter 3, verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful. And strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You do have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. They shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. I will not blot out his name from the book of life. But I will confess his name before my Father, and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The city of Sardis was located 30 miles southeast of Thyatira and about 50 miles due east of the first city, Ephesus. Sardis had been the capital of an ancient kingdom of Lydia. Later, it had become an important municipality of, of the Persians during the Persian Empire. The city itself, the city of Sardis, was built on on the top of a plateau that rose about 1,500 feet above a significant trade route that connected the interior portion of Asia Minor with the coast. It was an important trade route. The location of Sardis gave it strategic advantage and, as a result, immense wealth. Because of, again, the geographic location being on top of the steep plateau with these tall walls, Throughout her long history, Sardis was an ideal, perfect really, military post. In fact, on account of this defensible position, the city was considered to be impregnable. And yet, what's interesting about Sardis is that twice in her history, the city would be conquered, she would fall for the exact same reason. History documents, and specifically a Greek historian, Herodias, he documents that the first fall of Sardis, again, a city believed to be impenetrable, came in 549 B.C. to the Persian king Cyrus, knowing, again, that the linchpin to conquering the entire region was this important city guarding over this important trade route. Cyrus and his advisors, they were at a loss. For how in the world do we conquer this city with these vertical cliffs This natural defense. So they exhausted their options. They come up with various theories and and, and thoughts. No one could figure it out. So Cyrus, we're told, offers a reward. He tells his soldiers, anyone that can come up with a way to get into the city undetected, I'll give you a great reward. As the story goes and recorded by Herodias, a Persian soldier happened to just notice that one of the watchmen, guarding the walls of Sardis on top of the cliffs, accidentally dropped his helmet off the wall and it ends up tumbling down the side of the cliff well this Persian soldier thought that was interesting thought I wonder if he'll come and retrieve it he watched and sure enough without knowledge that he was being watched and tailed this soldier left his position exits the gate proceeds to climb down a hidden trail to retrieve his helmet not only did this ill-advised action reveal a secret way into the city but it gets much worse you see, upon their arrival that very night, Cyrus's men discover that the citizens of Sardis were so confident in their natural defenses that they felt no need to actually keep a diligent watch. There was no one guarding the gates at all. The city had been left unguarded. And as the residents of Sardis slept, totally unaware, by the time they woke, the Persian army had already taken the city unchallenged. Now, you would think historically you'd learn your lesson, right? (laughs) But when it comes to Sardis, amazingly, in 214 B.C., the armies of Antiochus the Great would also capture Sardis the, the identical way, the same way. A soldier watching, helmet tumbling, the whole shebang. According to Roman historians, in 17 A.D., the city of Sardis was completely destroyed by a massive earthquake that hit the region because she was no longer, at that point in her history, a strategic stronghold for Rome, it was decided that it would be too expensive to rebuild Sardis on top of the plateau, so they decided to rebuild the the city in the valley, actually along the trade route. By the end of the first century, when Jesus writes to this local church, Sardis was a city in serious decline. While she would always revel in her past glories, her former reputation... Over the next few centuries, Sardis's influence and strategic importance would slowly dissipate. Like in the end, the final death blow would come when Roman Emperor when the Roman Emperor Constantine decided to make now Constantinople the new capital of the East in one moment. The trade route that was the economic lifeblood for Sardis was no longer necessary. And in the just few short years that followed, the city became nothing more than a set of ruins commemorating a former fame. Now, the reason it's important to place this letter into the historical context of Jesus addressing the Protestant Reformation centers on the fact that with regards to this specific church located in ancient Sardis, we know virtually nothing about the church itself. We don't know anything. Like Revelation 3 is the only mention of Sardis, the city, in the entire Bible. Additionally, we have no evidence of Paul ever visiting Sardis during one of his many missionary journeys in the area. We have no idea how the church was started, how it grew, who was in charge of it. Furthermore, from the substance of Jesus' letter, Sardis seemed not to be experiencing any type of notable tribulation or trial, anything that we could pinpoint certain activities. No type of Christian persecution. And yet, while there is much we don't know about this church, we can say that this church community was in very bad shape. This was not a healthy church. This wasn't a good church. In fact, when you consider that Jesus is also speaking of churches that were born in the Reformation, it is a little shocking that Jesus has absolutely nothing good to say at all about this church. Within the letter, he issues no commendations, only criticisms. Jesus begins in verse 1 by acknowledging that this church possessed, look at it, he's, he says this church possessed a good reputation in their community. And, and right at the, the bat, you might be like, well, that's a good thing. But then he immediately adds, look at it, he says, I know your works, that you have a name that you are alive, but then the problem is that while there appeared to be life substantiated by these works, Jesus says this reputation of yours isn't connected to reality. He says, I know you works, so you have a name that you are alive, but then what does he say? Jesus declares, none of that's true, you're dead. Commentator David Guzik makes this interesting observation about Jesus' use of the word dead with regard to the church in Sardis. He writes, dead indicates no struggle. <laughs> you don't struggle when you're dead, you have given up. No fight. It wasn't that the church in Sardis was losing the battle. A dead body has lost the battle. The fight seems over. Like, again, this church in Sardis is in terrible shape. As far as Jesus was concerned, their reputation, their activity, was really nothing more than the evidence of a past life. It was an illusion, Michael. Like, in the Greek language, This word that we have translated dead, you know what the word means in the Greek, this word dead? It means, brace yourself, dead. You now know a little Greek too. Like Weekend at Bernie's, this church body, it was acting alive. It was being carried around. It had the appearance, the reputation of of life, when in reality it was dead. Dead as a doornail. Think of it like this, and this is probably an illustration that that you get out here in the country. But you know, if you take a chicken and you cut its head off, what happens? Yeah, it runs around. Like this church, think of it, was a headless chicken running around completely oblivious to to what had actually happened. Looks like there's life, it's dead. Now let me explain why Jesus would refer to this church as being dead. When there was a body, right? In motion. I think of it like this. How can a church be considered dead while at the same time still existing and remaining active in a community? You know, every human being, you, me, we're made up of three distinct parts. You have a physical body, that's your flesh and your bones, the material you. And you also have an immaterial soul, that's the real you. So you have a body and you have a soul. You have matter and then the immaterial. Both of these two things necessitate a spirit for life. You're a trichotomy, body, soul, and spirit. The problem is the spirit of man that you're born with, what gives you life, was tainted by sin. Like, everyone enters this world with a sin nature. That's what the Bible says. In fact, the Bible goes on to declare that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. (laughs) Let me illustrate that very quickly. Have you ever noticed that you never have to teach a child how to sin? Like, it comes, let's just say, naturally to them. Like, a kid intrinsically lies. Like, you don't have to teach them how to lie. You don't have to teach them how to be selfish. Or how to steal from their siblings. Like the one thing that every one of us is born really good at doing is the wrong thing. We're good at it. This is why if left in this state, when you die physically, your soul is condemned to hell. Like we call this, and we've even seen this, this is referred to as the second death mechanically, in order you, for you to be saved from this death, in order for you to receive what Jesus promises, right? Everlasting life. It's absolutely necessary that the spirit of man that yields death in your immortal body and your soul is replaced with something else. Like you have a, have a new source of life for everlasting life to exist. You have to, the spirit of man, be replaced with the spirit of God. It's the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, that brings life. It's why you live forever, not just the immaterial you, but that there's a physical resurrection of the body itself. Like, understand, the eternal life that Jesus gives practically to every person necessitates you being born again. Interesting, right? Born again. How are we born again? Well, the Bible says, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Like, the very moment that you... Kind of reach the end of yourself. You recognize your sin nature. You're like, man, I'm lost. I'm broken. Something's wrong with me. I need fixing, saving. I need a Savior. It's in that moment that you look to Jesus as your Savior, the Savior for sin. You place your faith in Him, what He did on the cross on your behalf. You accept that free gift. You ask to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That moment, a regeneration occurs. How? That spirit of man, that sin nature, is replaced with the Spirit of God. Let me give you a few proof texts so you don't take my word for it. God promised this. like This is the great miracle promised by God to Ezekiel the prophet that would occur in in the New Covenant. Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27, the Lord speaking, He says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take that heart of stone out of your flesh. I will give you a heart, a new heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. I'll cause you to walk in my statutes. You will keep my judgments and do them. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, Paul refers to this as becoming, quote, a new creation in Christ Jesus. Like, it's hard to explain. It's hard to articulate. There might even be some of you sitting there right now be like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And that's it's, it's hard, it's hard, it's hard to, to reason it because, again, it's a spiritual thing. It's a supernatural thing. It kind of transcends what I know. Like, I make a decision to follow Jesus. I ask to be filled with the Spirit, and immediately something changes. Yes, that's what I'm saying. And for anyone that's done that, something changes immediately. Who you are changes. What you want changes. What your desire is for changes. You still sin. You still, you're still a knucklehead. but you're kind of bummed out now that you're a knucklehead. It's like, man, I never felt weird about doing this, but now I feel I shouldn't be doing this. I I had a buddy of mine that lived next door to me. He gave his life to Jesus sitting in my driveway when it was pouring down rain. And the next day he told his girlfriend she had to get out. She was like, why? I was like, this is just wrong. I can't do this. Well, why? Well, last night, I asked Jesus to come into my heart, and he filled me with his spirit, and I can't in good conscience, like, I want to marry you, and we can get married, and we can, but I just can't do this. Well, she got very angry. (laughs) But you know what happened? She gave her life to Jesus, too. Like, I I can't explain, if you're sitting there like, this just sounds like the trippiest thing ever. It is, so try it out. (laughs) Like, I'm, I'm not kidding, like, like, you've done some drugs, you've tried that out, how about this? Like, because I guarantee you, the moment you make a decision to follow Jesus, you'll never regret the decision, I promise you. And something changes, something transforms, something spiritual happens. I can't explain it, I can only invite you to try it. You know, in a nighttime conversation with a Pharisee named Nicodemus, it's kind of the original Nick at Night, it's recorded... <laughs> Sorry. That wasn't even in my notes. That was a freebie. <laughs> and a conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus, it's, this is in John 3, Jesus says to Nicodemus, he says, unless one is born again, interesting language, right? He cannot see the kingdom of God. So Nicodemus is like, what? How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Like, what do you mean by born again? So Jesus answered, he said, most surely I say to you, unless one is born of water, right, and the spirit, two different verse, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. In Romans 8 verse 11, the apostle Paul would write, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you later in his epistle to the ephesians paul builds on that idea writing in the first few verses of chapter 2 he says and you jesus made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin notice the language here in which you once walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air the spirit by the way of who now works in the sons of disobedience among whom also we conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh fulfilling the desire of our flesh and of the mind we were by nature children of wrath, just as the others, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were noticed dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And then he adds, by grace you have been saved. You see, when Jesus refers to this church in Sardis as being dead, what he's saying is he's saying the source Of true spiritual life in this community, the essence of of what should have been manifesting their vitality. What gives life was missing. That's what he means by saying you're dead. What gives life isn't there. Like this was a church that was no longer dependent on or operating under the influence of the Holy Spirit. That's what made her dead. Which explains why of their Christian service, Jesus adds at the end of verse 2, He says, I have not found your works or what you're doing perfect before God. One translation renders this as your deeds are far from right in the sight of God. Now, we aren't given here any examples of their deeds. Why? Because whatever they were doing that gave them a good reputation, they were not manifesting from the Holy Spirit working through them. Which is why Jesus said that God took no delight in them. You see, it was their work and their flesh as opposed to His work through them by His Spirit. Though this church, you can imagine, had been initially clothed in righteousness because of this sad state of affairs. Look in verse (laughs) 4. Talk about some strong language. He says that they had, quote, defiled their garments. Literally, he says, You guys are walking around with soiled, stinky, poopy underpants. You've pooped yourself. That's what he's saying. Like, I mean, really, (laughs) imagine being in that congregation when you get this letter from Jesus. Letter from Jesus. Yeah, you've pooped yourself. What? Yeah, you stink. You know in light of these things, look at Jesus' counsel. back to verse two. He instructs them quote, "Be watchful, strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die." You know, with the history of this city in mind, this directive, "Hey, be watchful," probably stung a little, right? Like twice, the city had fallen to an invading power for the simple reason of pride, overconfidence and the resulting apathy. Like in the original language, this phrase "be watchful, be ye watchful, be ye continually watchful" it can be translated as "wake up" to a church that was dead and defiled. Jesus is trying in his very first words; he's trying to stir within them some type of cognitive awareness. You guys are just going through the motions. I don't care about any of this stuff. You've crapped yourself. You're walking around. You stink. You have a reputation, but you're dead. You have no spirit. Wake up. That's what he's saying. Notice your spiritual condition. Please see where you're at. As such, he advises them to immediately what? Strengthen or fortify the few good things that remained in the church. Like he cautions that if you don't do this, these two would soon be dead. Though the situation in Sardis was bleak, It wasn't entirely hopeless. In addition to commanding these believers to wake up and strengthen the things that remained, Jesus continues in verse 3 by explaining practically how that could be done. How do you strengthen the things that remain, especially when you're dead, right? Interesting question, kind of a dichotomy to it. But Jesus tells them how to strengthen these things. He says, look at it, he says, Remember therefore how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. Remember, you might want to circle that word, and then also, how. Those are the two important words in Jesus' exhortation. Well, there is no doubt this church was down for the count. She wasn't fully down and out of the fight. Like this phrase, remember, therefore. It literally means drive your mind back to a place. Think back. Remember. That's what we should ask, right? What was Jesus wanting this dead church to remember? To move their mind back to? He says, You have received. This phrase, You have received. What was Jesus wanting the dead church to remember? How you have received. He's wanting them to think back to what they had been given at the beginning that they were now lacking in the present. Again, it's not an accident, as we've seen with all of these letters. The way that Jesus introduces himself is of a particular relevance to his counsel and the necessary instructions. Again, I know we're kind of putting the mosaic together, but the letter to the church in Sardis, it opens in verse 1 with Jesus saying what? He says, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. While we have noted in our commentary of, of chapter 1 that these seven stars and reference and the fact that Jesus holds them in his hand of authority his right hand illustrates his authority over the church the church throughout all time the mentioning though of Jesus also having the seven spirits of God again is another reference back to chapter 1 but it's significant in the context of the church's dead lifeless condition and as Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 2, the Holy Spirit is described by the prophet as being the seven spirits of God. So when Jesus says, I am he who, who has the seven spirits of God, you're like, that's weird. What is that? Well, anytime you encounter that in the book of Revelation, always remember, it's the last book, so the answer is going to be found probably in the pages that come before, somewhere. You know, there's nothing new, the building upon things that are already established. So, seven spirits of God, what in the world could those be? Well, you go to Isaiah and you have mentioned, these are the seven spirits of God. Oh, that's probably a good answer. Probably an explanation. Seven spirits, the Holy Spirit having, according to the prophet, seven unique characteristics. That's what's being articulated. We're told in Isaiah that he's the spirit of the Lord, or the spirit of Jesus, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge, and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. Now, The core problem with this church was that they were no longer relying on what? The Holy Spirit. That's why they were dead. Specifically, they were no longer relying on the Holy Spirit in the way he manifests in these seven distinct ways. Let me illustrate them for you. This church had exchanged a godly dependency, the spirit of the Lord, for human sufficiency. They had exchanged divine wisdom, the spirit of wisdom, for human intelligence. They had exchanged a heavenly perception, the spirit of understanding, for human discernment. They had exchanged spiritual intuition, the spirit of counsel, for human rationality. They exchanged supernatural power, the spirit of might, for human strength. They had exchanged holy acumen, the spirit of knowledge, for human proficiency. They exchanged the pursuit of righteousness, the spirit of the fear of the Lord, for human relevancy. Like in the end, what this dead church needed more than anything else for there to be life was a fresh moving, an outpouring Of the Holy Spirit of God. This is why Jesus begins his letter. Introducing himself as the one. Who has the very thing that they need. The seven spirits of God. What he means is that. He's the dispenser. Of the very thing this church needed for revival. He could give them. Fill them. With the Holy Spirit. Remember. See this church needed to come to Jesus. And asked that as He in the beginning, now so many years later, infuse their church with fresh life through His Spirit. The question really then centered on whether or not they would ask or then receive it. Which is why Jesus stresses that they not only remember what they had been given in the beginning, but note, second word, how they had received the Holy Spirit. In verse 3, again, notice Jesus didn't say, remember what? You had received instead he tells them to remember how or or literally in what way you have received. How do you receive the Holy Spirit? I could teach two Bible studies on this, but I'll make it very quick. You receive the Holy Spirit in humility. And you receive the Holy Spirit by faith. And Mark 10 verse 15, Jesus said, assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child. Humility will by no means enter in. And then Galatians 3, Paul says, This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works? By works of the law? Or did you receive the Holy Spirit by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Remember. How? A few years ago, I had the opportunity to attend a conference in South Florida. Aside from the fact that the conference was in February and sun and sand, very appealing, what really interested me about the conference itself was the subject matter, was God's grace, but the audience was made up of mostly these dying, mainline, Protestant denominations. Like the entire conference, the speakers and those attending were Presbyterians, Anglicans, and Lutherans. As a Calvary guy, a non-denominational kid, Needless to say, I was a fish way out of water. Now, the reason I bring this up is that one of the breakout sessions was just for pastors. And I had the chance to attend it. It was a panel discussion. And and it included some of the most notable leaders within these various Protestant movements. During the conversation, the topic arose as to what was needed to do. Like, what did they need to do to reverse the current trends within their denominations? By the way, we'll see most of these churches completely empty by 2034. That's how quickly people are abandoning, abandoning these mainline denominations. That was the question. What do we do to stop this? How can we be relevant? How can we get people back in the seats? S- several of the younger fellows shared their various theories and anecdotes. Until finally the question was posed to the elder of the panel, a man who I I probably disagree with staunchly when it comes to a lot of theology, but I do admire him, a guy by the name of Steve Brown. To my shock, this is what he said, and I'm going to paraphrase it. He said, over my many years, I can say I have only seen a true supernatural outpouring of the Holy Spirit once. And it came during the Jesus movement of the 60s and 70s, when God used ministries like Calvary Chapel to reach an entire generation my denomination believed to be unreachable. Where I sit today, the only hope we have is to experience a similar moving of the Holy Spirit in our churches. And I thought, man, you read the letter to the Church of Sardis. And I'm part of that movement! Yeah! <laughs> I turned to the one Southern Baptist guy because, I mean, we, that's how... I'm rocking with a Southern Baptist. That's how out of, when you're a fish, and you're, you know, a blowfish and a pufferfish, out of water, I mean, you're hanging out with, you like the King James Version? Yeah, we're friends. Like, we're just, anyway. I'll move on. As you read through this letter to the Church of Sardis, can't you sense, and again, when you're just reading it on your own, Reading through it. You can sense some of Jesus' urgency, can't you? I do when I read it. Like he's appealing to this church to get their act together. Why? If they didn't, they ran the risk of missing something really important. His coming. Again, verse 3, he says, If you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come. You know, by definition, a thief is a person who unexpectedly snatches away something of great value. Because Jesus is addressing a dead church, it's my belief, personally, that this is a reference to the rapture of the church, or literally the snatching away of the faithful before the Great Tribulation. Though the rapture will be a glorious moment when the groom comes for his bride, for the rest of the world, including this dead church, it will be seen as a grand heist. And Jesus is saying, if you don't wake up, remember how, be filled with the Spirit, you run the risk of being left behind. To be fair to the mainline Protestant denominations, though the situation is bleak, Jesus does affirm right in our text that there were a few faithful believers among a dead majority. Verse 4, he says, there are a few names even in Sardis who have not defiled their garments. They walk with me in white for they're worthy. He who overcomes will be clothed in white garments. I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. You know, the way that Jesus identifies the faithful believers in this church is that unlike the rest, they had not defiled their garments. As such, Jesus promises them that they shall walk with him in white for they're worthy. Like in the end, it was their relationship with Jesus and his Righteousness apputed on their behalf that made these Christians worthy of being the bride. He then adds, he says, I will not blot out his name from the book of life. William Barclay notes that in ancient times, citizens, cities kept a registry of citizens. And then when someone died, his name was removed or blotted out from the register. Again, there's a lot we could go into concerning the book of life. We'll get to it at the end of the book of Revelation. Other than the fact that in this moment, Jesus, by bringing it up, He's reassuring the faithful of their salvation and their place in heaven. Like, Don't worry, you'll be clothed in white. You walk with me. I won't blot out your name. At the end of verse 5, Jesus says to those who overcome, He'd confess their name before His Father. That word confess, it doesn't just mean to like acknowledge you. It means to acknowledge you joyfully as jesus would attest to his disciples in matthew 10 verse 32 jesus says and this is important he says whoever confesses me before men him i will confess before my father who is in heaven With all these things in mind and our time rapidly expiring like let's bring the letter home by applying this to our church and more importantly to each of us as individuals Again, Jesus closes every letter. He says him who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To one church but many. Richard Rohr, who's a well-known Franciscan priest, he's an author. He's noted how church, within church history, we see a pattern that occurs over time within church movements. He refers to this reoccurring pattern as the reason that church movements die with time. He calls this, the cycle the four M's. Man, movement, machine, and monument. First, he says, a man is used by God in a powerful way. This man is called out by Jesus, filled with the Spirit, breaks the norms, pioneers a new way of doing things, or or maybe even a return to the right way of doing things. He says, if the man succeeds in his leadership and others rally around the mission, the work will move from the man to becoming a movement. Like The idea is that the cause of one man has become a rally for many. Because people now feel like they're a part of something that's dynamic and creative and purposeful. They get involved, they advocate, they promote it. It takes off. And while it's true that movements spread organically, at some point, once enough people have bought in, with time again, movements morph into machines. When things began as being dynamic and free and unstructured, the movement, it doesn't take long for the movement to kind of begin to mechanize certain things into a more defined structure. They employ organizational framework. They set up routines. Like, a machine, in the end, is built. Why? Well, to ensure the success, the longevity of the movement, most of the time after the man is gone. And yet, almost inevitably, the machine itself, like the structure that's designed to protect the movement, starts to become the object of attention. The structure itself, belonging to it, participating in it, becomes the central focus of those who are involved. Slowly, the machine becomes so regimented that it starts losing the life that it once had when it was just a movement. Finally, a machine will become a monument. When this final stage is reached, the original vision, the energy, the excitement, the passion of the man, and then later the movement, they're all but dead and gone. Innovation. This is how you know when it's happening. Innovation is replaced with tradition. Untested ideas with safe go-tos. The cutting edge for the tried and true. Fresh perspectives are replaced with trusted experience. Risk-taking with the, well, we've always done it this way, rigidity. True Annual anniversaries are celebrated more often. More frequently than fresh new tales of exciting ventures of faith. We celebrate like Sardis what God did, not what he's doing. Like historically it's true that most instances this transition from movement to machine, it takes place after the man that started the movement has died. Because the man who initiated the movement, there's no one that could take his place. The natural compulsion was to take the movement, compensate the lack of leadership, With organizational structure, and yet we should, friend, within a church, always resist this tendency. Why? The man who started our movement is not dead at all, but he's very much alive and well. You see, Jesus today, presently, is our advocate in heaven, he's our high priest, but beyond that, please understand, Jesus is the pastor. Of the church. It is him who holds the seven stars. And walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. A church. Should never become. A monument. To a former glory or fame. If Jesus is in her midst. This is why our focus as a church. And yours as a Christian. Should always be on the man Christ Jesus. With your dependency always being found on nothing. But the source of life. The Holy Spirit. Ultimately, there are two fundamental differences between a movement and a monument. First, movements are characteristic typically of the living, where monuments eulogize the dead. Sadly, there are many that seek to justify the structure of the machine, contending, you know, all living organisms are organized. That's true, but so are dead ones. They're also organized. Like the essential difference between being alive and dead is not organization, but movement. The moving of God's Spirit. The church in Sardis and those of the Protestant Reformation were and are dead because they're no longer dependent on the Spirit of God for life. You know, beyond the importance of of a church always seeking to remain reliant on the Holy Spirit, I just want to say this morning, if you feel as though your Christian experience, your walk has grown stale, that it's stagnant. If you feel worn out or apathetic, if you sense a creep of death, lethargic, apathetic, Jesus is saying this morning to you through this letter, wake up. Wake up and remember how. You desperately need to continuously ask. For and receive by faith that fresh, life-giving filling of the Spirit. But secondly, movements demand continual activity, don't they? Whereas a monument is, by definition, a fixed object. Like it's a reality that movements intrinsically focus on future advancements while monuments only seek to commemorate past achievements. Christian, never forget, your spiritual life will be in grave danger death if you not only refuse the compulsion of taking your eyes off of jesus or depending on anything but his spirit but you are in danger when you and don't miss this we'll wrap it up when you begin to reminisce more about the things god did in your christian life than the work he's currently doing you are in big trouble don't miss that You know, Paul in in Philippians chapter 3, he says, Brethren, I do not count myself as to apprehend one thing. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. Often when we read this, in the context that Paul's writing it, from a prison cell, in light of the fact that his life had been uh, lived before Jesus in a terrible way, as as a religious zealot persecuting the church, When we talk about Paul forgetting those things which are behind, we often place it within the context of Paul forgetting about the terrible things he had done. Where Satan beats the condemnation drum to make him mired in in his unworthiness. We think, you need, in order to go forward, to forget the mistakes you've made. That is true, friend. And glorious. But in the context of what Paul's saying... It's not just the mistakes he needs to put behind to press forward. It's also the achievements. You see, the moment that you are focused on what God has done, the work God has accomplished, you are in danger of death. Yes, you can respect those things and acknowledge those things. You can set up monuments for yourself to remember how and then move forward. It's always dangerous when I hear someone, hey, how are you doing, brother? How are you doing with your walk with the Lord? Oh, man, i got to tell you about this mission trip that I did two years ago. Oh, the incredible thing God did when I went to Cuba. Okay, that, that was two years ago. Are you just going through the motions now? Like, what is God doing now? Is it fresh? Is it alive? Is it happening right now? We'll have eternity to think back. But as Paul says, it's time for us to press forward to new adventures, to new journeys. So if you feel lifeless, you don't have to be. Ask Jesus. He holds the seven spirits in his hand. He's more than willing to give it. Are you willing to receive it? So Father Lord, I do pray for the church here, Lord, that you would fill anyone with your Holy Spirit that is in need of it, which is all of us.